Corey Doctorow is a co-editor of Boing Boing and a regular contributor to The Guardian, Locus, and many other publications. His novels Little Brother and Homeland were New York Times bestsellers. He lives with his family in Los Angeles. I caught up with him after an appearance he made at the Ottawa International Writers Festival promoting Radicalized, his new book of four science fiction novellas. We talked about copyright and the new European Union directive on this latest episode of The Bibliophile. Okay, the European Copyright Directive is intended to, quote, ensure a well-functioning marketplace for the exploitation of works and other subject matter. Mm-hmm. One of the key goals is, quote, to reduce the value gap between profits made by internet platforms and by content creators. Uh, but so let's look very This is all very high-minded. Let's, let's get yeah. into, like, brass tacks, particulars. For, for writers and publishers. Sure. So where do publishers stand, book publishers stand on this new copyright directive? So there's five big book publishers left, and through their industry associations, they promoted it. Uh, same with the four big record labels that are left and the four big movie studios that are left. Although at times they objected to it for, for intense technical reasons. But Okay, so why did the publishers support this? So, let, so I think that we're getting ahead of ourselves, because we should say what it does, right? Like saying, this will improve things is not doesn't doesn't tell you much. It's like those... People, you know, when you call up, it's when you call Air Canada and they say to serve you better, we're putting you on hold, right? (laughs) I mean, you have to actually know what they're doing, right? So there are three important clauses in the directive. They all got renumbered in the final directive. So we'll just refer to them as like by what they do rather than by their numbers. So one was about uh, newspapers and it said that you could not link to a news article with an excerpt of as few as two words without permission from the news entity who could then charge for that permission. And the idea was that it would force Google and Facebook to pay for their news aggregation services that currently do something that's totally legal under copyright, which is to say, here's a link to a news article, here's its title, here's a sentence from it, right? Um, what they said is, no, 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 that's not going to be permitted anymore. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to license it. And they tried this before nationally in Germany and Spain, and Google and, and Facebook just stopped serving news links and uh, they begged them to come back and they begged them to come back right I mean value gap value gap like they they don't exist without like that's how people find the news right and they find the news that way because we're down to half a dozen giant media tech companies and they aggregate all of our eyeballs just like we're down to like half a dozen giant news companies and half you know like it's and publishers and publishers and it and they all like have interlocking ports of directors and also the same major shareholders in their cap tables. So okay. they're really just, it's just oligarchs fighting with each other, which is a theme I think we should return to. So the, the side consequence of this, this will arguably transfer a zero or two from Google's balance sheet to say Bertelsmann's balance sheet, okay. right? Uh, or News Corp. But um, it will also give media companies the right to decide who can link to them all together. Right, because remember that a bare link, like just the URL of most news stories, has more than two words from the news story. Yeah. So depending on the national implementations, they they could go as as low as two words. And so even though in the directive they say, oh, well, this doesn't ban linking, 
it just bans excerpting, you can't link in many cases without excerpting. And letting media companies decide who can criticize them, which is to say who can link to them and who can quote them in the yeah. course of linking to them, does not produce better news, right? This no. is how we got weapons of mass destruction. Right? What about individuals? Like if I want to link to it? Well, uh, I mean, this is a question because they, they talk about commercial linking, but if you're hosted on a commercial platform that, like Blogger that puts ads next to your stuff, even if you don't get it, is that a commercial link? It's going to be determined by 28 different countries and their national legislatures, and the tech platforms are not going to be able to figure out which country you're coming from, and so they're going to take the, the most restrictive version and they're going to apply it. And that's the same with all the other clauses, that the, the clauses in the directive uh, have to be transposed into national legislation, every EU member state, yeah. but because the companies in the EU who are getting these new pseudo-copyrights from it will have standing to sue if their rights are violated anywhere, then the tech companies are going to be in a race to the bottom with their legislature. So the most restrictive version is the version everyone takes on. Mm -hmm. um, the other very restrictive clause is about um, changing the rules on um, liability for copyright infringement. So the way that it works now is uh, if you allow people to communicate with each other in public, if you let them put Minecraft skins up or audio clips or video or a tweet or pictures of their grandchildren, anything. An excerpt from a book. An excerpt from a book, a whole book, whatever it is, right? If you let people make work available, then um, you live in something called a safe harbor. It goes by different names in different countries, but the generic legal term is a safe harbor. And the way safe harbor broadly works is you don't have a general duty to police your users, right? Because like there isn't a boiler room big enough to review 400 hours of video being submitted every minute to YouTube. But you do have a responsibility to, on notice of an infringement, promptly remove something. And so it's a bit of a, a bargain. Everyone gives up something. I used to work in a bookstore in Toronto. Um, if, if you walked in and you said, this book here on the shelf, this infringes my copyright, I demand that you remove it. Me, the clerk behind the counter, would say, I'm sorry, you're going to have to get a court order and have it sent to my boss. Right? You're going to have to prove it. Yeah, I don't remove that stuff just because you say so. On the other hand, if you uh, are selling infringing work because of the strict liability regime in copyright, which means that even if you don't know that you're uh, doing something illegal, even if you have good faith reasons to believe that you're on the right side of the law, you can still be held liable, means that in the absence of safe harbor, your users posting something infringing makes you liable. And, you know, many countries have these uh, really heavy statutory damages regimes for infringement. In the U.S., it's $150,000 per download. So both sides give something, both sides get something, right? The, the people who provide a forum for communicative speech or expressive speech uh, get immunized from the liability for what their users do, but they lose the right to demand a court order. The people whose materials might be infringed on um, lose the right to extract revenue from whoever has the deepest pockets in the value chain when their rights are infringed, but also lose the obligation to spend an untold amount of money convincing a judge that their rights have been trammeled before they get action. They can get injunctive relief merely by pointing their finger and saying so. The next part of the copyright directive, it's now Article 17, it was Article 13 before, removes safe harbor. And it says that if you are a place where people can communicate to the public, you have a responsibility to ensure that whatever they communicate doesn't infringe copyright. And for, for that to be made easy to understand for me, mm -hmm. 
That's what YouTube does. Google has got this filter. Yeah, content ID. Yeah. If someone says to them, you're yeah. this is infringing my copyright, they've got, a, a, what, a whole bunch of stuff that they... So actually, YouTube does, does a much more cautious and modest version of this. What YouTube does is they have a list of, of trusted rights holders who they think won't abuse the system. Sometimes it gets abused anyways. Mm. And they say, Tell, give me your catalog of your work and we'll make sure that it, uh, if any of our users upload something that seems to match it, we won't post it. Or if they do post it, we'll get to it and, and get it out. Well, no, no, no. It just won't appear. You're describing notice and takedown. Content ID is notice and stay down. I see. So it never appears, right? So in, in, in free speech parlance, this is what's called prior restraint, right? Where material is suppressed before there's a showing of fact, right? Uh, that, that there's an infringement taking place mm -hmm. or some unlawful act taking place. And again, that's a private act, right? YouTube does this off its own bat. They spend $100 million developing this. But um, if you're not one of their trusted rights holders, you just have to live in the notice and takedown world. You just yes. have to send them takedowns. Um, in both cases, no one checks the claims to make sure they pass the giggle test. Right. right. So in other words, I can just say that that's mine and they'll have to check that I'm valid though. Nope. They automatically take yep. it down? So for example, newscasters routinely upload the nightly news to the copyright claims database of Content ID. They take their 6 o'clock newscast and it's 7 p.m. They start uploading it to YouTube. Not, to, not for display, but just as a thing to check against. Anyone who uploads that gets, gets blocked. What about publishers? Do they put their whole text of all their books up there? They can do that for Amazon. Google, nobody posts the text of books to YouTube. No, <laughs> obviously, so. right? Audiobook publishers do. Yeah. Audiobook publishers can do it. People do that for Amazon self-publishing platform. So newscasters upload their whole newscast, but newscasters sometimes air things that don't belong to them. So um, when NASA landed the rover on Mars, they live stream that footage. And newscasters all over the world picked it up and uh, put it in the nightly news. And half a dozen newscasters claimed copyright on it. And the next day when NASA tried to upload their footage, and there's no crown copyright in the U.S. If a work is made federally, it's in the public domain at the instant of creation. Because it's made at public expense, the public can use it. So this not only wasn't owned by the government, it was owned by no one. But NASA itself could not upload its own footage because of it. Now NASA has a big stick. And they hit YouTube with it. And YouTube went and fixed it. There are people who have much smaller uh, um, uh, soapboxes. You know, so for example, uh, there was an artist whose stock footage was licensed by Sony. Sony put it in uh, some promotional industrial film that they put on YouTube for themselves, right? They said like this, this was a promotional for their own work. And then they added it to the copyright claims database. This artist was not able to post their own material to YouTube. And when they did, they attracted a copyright strike. And if you have three copyright strikes, they remove you from YouTube. And thanks to monopolization, removal from YouTube is a kind of internet death penalty. So this is all as a result of Directive 17. So, so this is what YouTube does voluntarily. Yeah. This is not Article 13 or Article 17. Article 17 says every platform, as a matter of its normal business, once they meet certain criteria, so if they've been in business for three years, or if they've turned over, I think it's 10 million euros in a year, or if they've got 2 million users or more, has to uh, rise to this bar. So you could be just a little, a little forum for people to go fishing, right? On a self-hosted like PHP BBS, like one of these like free, free software things that you get, you know, your local ISP gives you some space and you throw it up and people can just have a message board. And after three years, you acquire a duty to police your users and you have to know, like, 
is this infringing? Is that infringing? That photo someone uploaded of a bass they caught, is that someone else's photo? And you are on the hook. You have now, you now have liability. And the, the directive says you don't have to use filters to do this, right? They say, in fact, they say, try not to use filters to do this. In the same way that like I might say to you, now as a matter of law, you must procure and deliver a large gray African land mammal with four legs, a tail, tusks, and, and, a, and a, a trunk, and if at all possible, don't make it an elephant, right? In the run-up to the passage of the directive, which was passed uh, by five votes and 10 MEPs who voted for it said that they pressed the wrong button and later had the record amended, but the vote stands. Members of the European, the European Parliament. Parliament. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the run-up to this, the advocates for this said, well, this will be done without filters. Look, it says in the directive it will be done without filters. But immediately after it's so passed... was it being done by then? Individuals? Presumably. Giant boiler rooms full of, full of uh, people who are copyright scholars. Okay. Full employment for everyone who ever took a first-year copyright course at Osgoode Hall until the end of time, okay. right? Literally the day after this passed, the French government uh, started to sketch out the contours of its regulation, and they said it will have filters. And then the German government said, now we're going to start talking about our regulation, it will have filters. And the European commissioner, who'd argued in favor of it, said, in hindsight, of course, this will have filters. So that's this, and it's, it's very expensive to imagine these filters. YouTube, which only accepts claims from a small group of trusted rights holders and only for video, spent $100 million, right? How does all this affect publishers, though, book publishers? So in theory, if you are worried about your books being infringed on some platform. And why are they supporting this? So why, oh, why are the public, so in theory, what, what this does is this lets you, well, it's hard to attribute all of, like, I, I can give you my theories about it. So I remember when there were a whole bunch of internet radio stations, and it was under something called the um, Copyright Arbitration Royalty Panel, CARP, uh, that set a rate for it. And the Recording Industry Association of America, and there were thousands of internet radio stations. They all paid a royalty and it all went to labels and labels paid whatever they had to to artists, not much. Um, and the uh, labels successfully argued to have the royalty rate raised to the point where only about six companies could do it. And the compliance regime, the, the recording regime where you had to report what you did, so onerous that only like half a dozen companies could do this. And I had an argument with a guy from the Recording Industry Association of America, a lobbyist about this. And he said, well, look, we don't like the government telling us what rate our royalties are set at. If there's only six people s streaming audio, we can put them around a table mm -hmm. and we can twist their arms and we can set a rate. And that rate can be lower for this company that wants to play ball and can be higher for this company that won't, right? Rather than having a, a, a single rate that's available to all comers and promotes competition, we can capture that industry. So if you're a publisher, Right now, there's a lot of different forums that your work flows through and so on, and negotiating with all of them might be really cumbersome. And one of the things that might benefit you is if you were impedance matched with the distribution sector, because that's what the internet is, is distribution and, and, and retail and marketing sector, mm -hmm. right? Um, it might be great if your five companies could be matched with five companies on the other side. You could all sit around a table. Do you remember um, just after the inauguration, Trump held a meeting with the uh, tech executives? And yeah. So Tim May was there and so on, or Tim, not Tim May, Tim, Tim, the CEO. Jack was there. Yeah, Jack Dorsey, Tim, the CEO of Apple, the one, the one who oh, called, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Tim Cook, sorry, Tim yeah. May is a software architect. Yeah. Uh, all these people are on the table. They all fit around one table, right? You can't have a conspiracy unless you can all fit around one table, right? So squeezing everything down to the point where you, all of the 
CEOs of, of your sector and all the CEOs of the sector you're bargaining with. Which is four or five big yeah. publishing houses. Where they can all sit together, they can they can do good. And you know what? If the state will put its thumb on the scales and give you a little bit of negotiating leverage over this other sector that you're negotiating with it, so much the better. Right? Publishing keeps having banner years, as do record labels, as do... And know. yet, writers are as poor as ever. Yeah. So So why is the writers' union supporting this? So now this brings us to the other clause. That now, let's, let's, let's be incredibly generous to the writers' union about why they're doing it. Let's assume that they read it, they disagree with my analysis about monopolies, and they thought that the directive as a whole would be good news, and the reason they thought the directive as a whole would be good news is there was one more clause that said that artists must, as a matter of national law, be guaranteed fair remuneration for their work from their publishers, right. from their labels, from their studios. So pretty much the day that the final language for this filter was enshrined, the labels, the studios, publishers wrote a letter to the European Union demanding that fair compensation for artists be removed. They said, we and our artists, we're friends. We can negotiate a good rate between ourselves. The government doesn't need to interpose itself between us and them. Giving artists the opportunity to sue us because their contracts are too one-sided, well, that would um, you know, prevent us from making the kinds of high-risk bargains that we would make with new artists, uh, where we have to take a lot more, mm-hmm. and that enables us to invest in them. And so in that world, they're just, they're useful idiots. They're patsies. But um, why, why did they continue to support this then? So even in light of this, well, I, it was an objection, right? I think that it's Stockholm Syndrome. I think that there are a lot of people who assume that just because you're on your publisher's side, that your publisher is on your side. Yeah, you think they're out. Well, that's the whole purpose of a publisher. It's, it's, I think the shareholders would disagree. Well, the whole purpose of the publisher in the view of the writer sure. is they're going to present my work in a, yeah. in a beautiful way and they're going to market it yeah. brilliantly. Yeah. And they've done that in the past, yeah. so I trust them. Yeah. And if, if what's good for them is good for me, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, and what's it, good for GM is good for America. But it's, it's, you know, I think that, like, we always have to nominate experts to navigate complex technical world uh, worlds. You know, as we've talked about before, you know, you have to have a heuristic, a rule of thumb. Who do I trust and who don't I trust? And I think that you people often assume that publishers are on their side because sometimes artists and publishers' interests converge. Mm-hmm. I also think that... Well, to, quite often. I mean, if sure. the more money the publisher makes, theoretically, the more money the author makes. If you can leave the publisher and go somewhere else with your book, if the publisher starts screwing you over. When there's four or five publishers, that starts to break down a little. You know, I think that um, also that the primary use of copyright for artists has historically been as a negotiating framework and a source of leverage over publishers. Artists don't sue audiences, you know, historically, right? Uh, If there's a copyright lawsuit involving an artist, the person that artist is suing is probably their publisher, their label, their studio. And there is a rule of thumb that says that the more copyright you have, the more ammunition you have to squeeze more money out of your uh, counterparty. I actually recently did a, a contract, a consulting contract, with a big company, I'm not going to name them. It involved going overseas for three days, and they offered me a really handsome package, enough that it was worth my doing. But they were having struggling to produce a contract in good time. So they roughed out a deal memo, and my agent was like, 
Ugh, they can't possibly be this big and screw everyone. And it is a lot of money. And they sound sincere. And the consultants that they hired to, that brought you in, they really like you. Maybe you should do it. That was two months ago. We still don't have a contract. And we just got a contract from them. And among other things, it said, actually, we've decided that the work isn't done. You're going to need to come overseas twice more for the same payment. And my agent and I were like, oh, this is the worst outcome. And then I looked around and I realized, actually, so this was a big collaborative effort. There were like four or five of us working on this. All of our work was mixed together. And there's no way they can use it without getting a license for me. So my copyright means that I can go to them and say, actually, I'm not going to do another lick of work for you until you pay me everything you owe me. Because otherwise, you can't use any of the work that I've just delivered. So that's great, right? But in general... When you have a market that is concentrated where the negotiating leverage of artists is very thin as against the negotiating leverage of the publishers or, or other entities they bargain with, giving artists more copyright is like giving your bullied kid more lunch money, mm -hmm. right? The bullies yeah. just take that too. So a great example is in the early days of hip hop music, sampling was not believed to be uh, a thing that required copyright clearance. And there's two bases for believing this. One is that it's fair dealing or fair use. The other one is that it's too small, it's de minimis, to below the threshold for copyright notice. And um, we had a lot of hip-hop music made in those days. And a lot of the music they sampled, it came from classic soul, artists who themselves had been terribly exploited. Uh, and they weren't getting any money from this. But the artists who were making new music were. They were doing really well. And they made really successful albums. Still to this day, the two most successful hip-hop albums of all time are Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, and The Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique. Both of those use so many uncleared samples that if you cleared them today, they would go from being the most profitable hip-hop albums to money losers, right? So those albums literally couldn't exist in a world of copyright clearance. As copyright clearance crept in, artists... What is copyright clearance? Like you have to get permission. You have to pay for a license to use a sample. Right? Instead of just using it without permission, instead of treating it as fair dealing or, or the minimus, right? Yeah, yeah. As it crept in, first of all, that kind of music disappeared. So we don't have songs with 500 samples in them. We have songs with two samples in them. We do have songs with 500 samples in them. They're illegal, right? Mm -hmm. And nobody can make any money off them. Girl Talk can't sell his albums, right? Uh, you know, Montreal guy, right? So, so the, you know, we have, so we have art that's illegal and those artists can't get paid. We have a stream of revenue from uh, one label to another or within a label. And some of that revenue fund is, finds its way into artist pockets. But in general, the deals that are cut and the deals that are being cut don't entitle artists to much or any of that sampling right. So we created a new right, essentially at a whole cloth, the right to charge for a sample. Mm -hmm. And then that right was immediately arrogated to the labels. Now, in theory, you could retain your sampling rights by not going to a label. But if you want to sample, you have to be under a label because they don't, they don't license except to each other, right. right? And so you have to sign up for a sharecropping arrangement just to make art. And, and as we've discussed before, the labels, by dint of only having four of them, have a very funny accounting. So if you um, get a royalty statement from, from your label, on the royalty statement is a line item that says... Uh, breakage, and it's a percentage deducted from your royalties, and it's the percentage to account for the number of vinyl record albums broken between the warehouse in Etobicoke and Sam the Record Man on Young Street. They've both been extinct for 20 years, and it's taken from your MP3 royalties, and the reason for that is go fuck yourself, because there's only four record labels, and we all do it, and if you don't like it, go get a tin can and a string. And so, um, hip-hop artists can either make illegal music that puts them in harm's way, they could be sued, right, and also prevents them from making money, or they can sign up to a label, and 
constrain the music they make, right? No longer make art of this sort that was both immensely artistically satisfying to the people who made it and popular with the audience for it, and also have revenues taken out of their budget, out of their advance, that's just moved around on the label's own balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And as a condition of doing that, they also have to sign away a bunch of their rights and get embroiled in this dirty accounting scheme. So not every copyright that you give to an artist acts like that, but if the, if the copyright is alienatable under contract law, if you can contract it away, under conditions of concentration, most artists will be forced to, con- to contract that right away. So the publishers now make you contract away your worldwide English rights or your audiobook rights or your graphic novel rights. All of these used to generate a separate stream of payments for the artists. Now they don't. Right now, uh, you can't negotiate it's, a better deal. Isn't it up to the, your, your agent? Yeah, but there's five publishers. That? There's five publishers. And, and Three of them non-negotiably take those rights. Five big ones, but right. don't you have an option to go to... Sure, and they can use one of those great distributors like Baker and, Baker and Taylor that just announced that they're exiting the market. Yeah. Right? I, I mean... We used, to, we used to stock so many books from amazing independent publishers that were mm. distributed by Harold Fenn, H.B. Fenn & Co. Harold was amazing. So I worked at this indie bookstore. We were broke. The 80s were really hard on us, and we were on hold with all the publishers. And my boss used to drive his hatchback up to Mississauga every day with the money from the cash register to buy a box of books to sell the next day. And Harold would sit in his office and watch my boss drive up and back. And one day he came out into the parking lot, and he said, like, your store is on Queen Street. What are you doing out here doing this? And he explained it. And Harold said, any bookseller who will do this is a good credit risk. I'm taking you off hold. And that saved the store. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And Harold used to distribute all kinds of tiny little publishers. Yeah. Right? Parliament and the uh, Competition Bureau let uh, Indigo buy its major distributor, Pegasus, and merge with it after merging with chapters. And within a couple of years, Harold was out of business. Right, And the business, there is a great independent distributor here, Raincoast. Raincoast exists because of a pure quirk of history. Because back when we had independent publishers, none of the majors wanted to take a risk on a book called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Mm, yes. And so this one indie publisher did it. Their windfall... Just died, didn't he? I didn't know that. Google? I only work with the people who work with me, yeah, but yeah, yeah. that's tragic. Yeah. Anyway, Raincoast now is the last bastion of independent distribution in Canada. And so if you're lucky enough to be with a, to, with a small publisher and that publisher is signed to Raincoast and in a world where we have increasingly fewer indie stores, you can find a store to stock it or the one major bookseller coast to coast decides to give you some shelf space, then yes, you might have a career, right? But certainly your odds are better if you're signed to one of the big five, soon to be the big four. Mm-hmm. And those odds, the odds of surviving in one of the indies keeps getting worse. Um, you know, I'm published by a wonderful indie book, uh, press called uh, McSweeney's, founded by Dave Eggers. They published a book of mine called Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. That's all about this stuff. And uh, with an introduction by Neil Gaiman, who is opposed to the copyright directive, and his wife, Amanda Palmer. Along with Stephen Fry. Along with Stephen Well, but he didn't write an introduction for me. He oh, did. if only Steve would, would write an introduction for me. <laughs> opposing, opposing this the uh, copyright directive. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, McSweeney's had to restructure as a nonprofit because they were going to go broke and they had to be able to accept donations because they just couldn't stay in business as a business. So, yeah, in theory, find an indie press, but cross your fingers. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, I want to, like, point out that 
40 years ago, before Brown Mulroney, before Ronald Reagan, before Margaret Thatcher, none of these mergers would have been permitted. It, companies weren't allowed to buy their large competitors. They weren't allowed to merge with them. They weren't allowed to buy the innovative nascent competitors that might grow to compete with them. Mm-hmm. And they weren't allowed to uh, have vertical integration. You could have a railway company or you could ship freight, but you couldn't ship freight on the railway company if you own them both. And I think the, the, one of the big concerns is just diversity of voices. Yeah. That's why we have a we culture industry. Have yeah. Sure. And when, you know, when five executives decide who gets heard, you can hope that their dictatorship will be benevolent. Right? That's all you can do is hope. But and even if it is, you can hope that you have then have to hope that their kids aren't idiots. Right? And you know, like how'd that work out for the Eaton family? Right? Shirt mm-hmm. sleeves, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. The first generation makes it, second generation spends it, and the third generation loses it. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this is one of the reasons I favor shorter copyright terms is because uh, being a descendant of an artist doesn't make you a good steward of their work. Mm-hmm. And we have lots of instances, you know, St- uh, Stephen Joyce, the grandson of James Joyce, you know, s- threatening to sue mm-hmm. the Irish National Library for displaying Joyce's papers on the centenary of Bloomsday and telling pubs that they couldn't allow people to read from Ulysses and, you know, like deciding which scholars were allowed to write work mm-hmm. based on, on his work. You know, it, um, if the idea is to incentivize living artists, I think that we can understand that the incremental new incentive of doing what Canada just agreed to do because the U.S. trade representatives strong-armed them into it when they renegotiated NAFTA, Mm. putting books that are out of copyright back into copyright does not create an incentive to make new works, right? Isaac Asimov isn't going to write more works because he's got another 20 years of copyright. He's dead, right? His family are happy, but that's about it. Well, his daughter is estranged from him because in the uh, afterward to his last book, which he wrote as he lay dying, he revealed that he'd had an affair on on her mother. So she's not going to... Be care much, right? And and yeah. his ex-wife certainly isn't going to care. And I think his second wife is dead. So you know, yeah. I, I just went through a long process appointing a literary executor to make sure that if my daughter, who I love dearly and seems to have a solid head on her on her shoulders, grows up to be some meth cooker, that she can't you know sell the options on my work to someone she meets in a crack house and suppress it from being published. Nice. <laughs> Uh, Tim Berners, the Jimmy Wales, Mitch Kapoor, all oppose yeah. this directive, yeah. copyright directive. And the UN Rapporteur for Free Expression, David Kay, and the 50 top copyright scholars in the UK that create consortium, and the consortium of independent journalists who did the Panama Papers work, and the Paradise Papers work, and 5 million Europeans who signed the largest petition in European history against it, and 200,000 Europeans who marched in 50 cities against it. Um, And yet the Writers' Union of Canada supports it. Yeah. Ironically, one of our best chances for abolishing this is the European-Canadian Free Trade Agreement, which actually prohibits imposing this kind of liability on platforms. And because it has this dirty thing called an an investor-state dispute settlement in it, which is when a company can sue a government to repeal its laws. So Harper concluded so many of these deals. He did one with China where Chinese mining companies can sue Canada to repeal environmental laws if they adversely affect mines that China has invested in in Canada. Um, But the ISDS, the Investor State Dispute Settlement, means that any Canadian company has standing, I think, I'm not an expert in international trade, but I think they have standing to sue any European country that passes a law that imposes a general monitoring duty. Also, the European Court of Justice had previously said that a general monitoring duty is unconstitutional under the European uh, human rights framework. 
And uh, that means that um, if there is uh, filters in the directives, as it looks like there's going to be, then uh, it's likely that it wouldn't survive a European court challenge. But we'll see. I tell you what, though, speaking as someone who's a British citizen and has been watching Brexit in horror, if you wanted to discredit the whole European project, you could not do better than to ignore the will of five million people and every technical expert and the copyright scholars and the investigative journalists and go ahead and pass this rule under color of the most stupid back-ass words justifications about how this wouldn't require filters and the nerds will figure it out. As a British citizen, you, you what, you're supportive of, of the Leave campaign because well, of this? British uh, media companies played a really outsized role in passing the copyright directive. So I'm not confident that a Britain freed from the European Union would fare any better. Right. And in fact, you know, one of the major uh, things impelling the, the, the uh, Leave movement in the Brexit debate is uh, far-right authoritarians who want to be shut of the European Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights. And so, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think that the UK is going to be better off uh, yeah, in terms of, of any kind of evidence-based policy as a result of this. I think the UK will continue its slide to being primarily hospitable to banks and secondarily hospitable to bankers if absolutely necessary, and everyone else can go fuck themselves. I think that's the, that's, it's, it's going to be... That's why you left. It's going to be oh. the Grand Caymans, you know? Yeah, it's going to, like, all these, all these treasure islands that Britain set up with their former colonial holdings as, as tax havens, this is their, this is their revenge. You know, the, the, the biggest treasure island is going to be England. Well, speaking of Treasure Island and fiction, perhaps we could uh, finish off with some thoughts on on uh, something completely different, uh, mm -hmm. and that is writing science fiction. Sure. Science fiction, and this is Ursula Le Guin, mm -hmm. science fiction is often described as extrapolative. The writer is supposed to take a phenomenon or a trend of the here and now to purify and intensify it for dramatic effect extend it into the future. If this goes on, this will happen. So it's a predictive model, or it's a predictive form of art. Do you agree with that or not? I am substantially in agreement until we get to the prediction part. Mm -hmm. I am not a believer in prediction. I think, uh, you know, Dante, he takes the, the fortune tellers, and he, he twists their head around 180 degrees so that they are always looking behind them, and he strips them naked, and he makes them wade through thigh-deep molten shit while they're flogged by demons and they weep down their backs and it rolls into their ass cracks. And I think you let the, the, the fortune tellers off lightly. Because if you can tell the future, then the future doesn't change based on what we do. right? Uh, optimism and pessimism are both fatalism in two different guises. The idea that things will get better no matter what we do and the idea that things will get worse no matter what we do. They're both counsels of despair. They both mm -hmm. say, just don't bother getting out of bed this morning. It doesn't matter what you do. Well, that's what she says. It's strictly extrapolated works generally arrive somewhere between gradual extinction of human liberty and total extinction of uh, territorial life. It's yeah. damn depressing. And that's why a lot of people don't yeah. even like to read sci-fi. Well, you know, I think that there's a difference between writing a story in which things break down mm -hmm. and writing a, a dystopian story. I think the, the presumption that complex systems have failure modes is, not, is just realistic, right? Engineers who design systems on the assumption that they'll just never break those people aren't optimists, they're idiots, right? That's why they left the lifeboats off the Titanic, right? Planning for graceful failure is a foundational act of hope because it says that though the machine may stop, we can start it again. And to me, 
there are lots of, of science fiction that gets lumped in with dystopian science fiction that just has a lot of dystopian furniture, mm. right? What could be more hopeful than people, you know, pluckily surviving uh, yeah. a catastrophic failure? And, you know, we have some catastrophic failures on our horizon, right? Mm. The, 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 We're living with it yeah, in real life. change and inequality combined are this toxic soup. You know, one is, one is fire, the other is gas. We are headed for this this horrific uh, catastrophe if we don't avert it. But if we do avert it, there is enormous possibility, right? You know, there's this book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell. Solnit is best known for coining the term mansplaining, but that's rather yeah. unfair because her best work is as a historian yeah. and a political thinker. And Paradise Built in Hell is this very closely researched history of natural disasters. Uh, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, uh, the earthquake in Haiti, uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina, and uh, what she identifies is that our stories about these disasters are about man's inhumanity to man, people rushing over to their neighbor's house with a shotgun. But when you actually read the contemporaneous accounts, first-person contemporaneous accounts by people who live through it, people don't go over to their neighbor's house with a shotgun, they go over with a covered dish, right? That, that the disaster is the moment when the background hum of petty grievance stops and leaves a ringing silence and you realize that you have more in common with your enemies with your, your neighbors than you have uh, against them, and you pull together. And if there's any disaster that we need to pull together for, mm -hmm. it's, it's climate remediation. And when we talk about, well, who will do the work, right? Where will we get the money to do the work, to do the things? And then at the same breath, we say, what will these people who used to work in the hydrocarbon industry do? Well, I have an idea, right? If, if, if we have people in precarious work, on unsatisfying work, and underpaid work, and out of work and discouraged from, from looking for work, let's give them a job, right? Let's give every person a job because we have full employment for the next thousand years, mm. unwinding the unwise uh, pumping of carbon into our atmosphere and finding alternative sources of energy and creating the infrastructure to make our cities sustainable without the same carbon footprints that they have today. And, you know, that is a wonderful utopian vision of all of us being engaged in a meaningful project that um, survives us, that uh, has dignity for each person, and that um, produces something that makes the world a better place for us and for our descendants. And it will be great if we don't screw it up, right? And, and so, you know, fiction obviously has to have people screwing it up, otherwise it's, it's boring, yes. but they can triumph at the end. Yes, well, she, she suggests that extrapolation is just one element. Yeah. And that uh, what science fiction is really is a, is a thought experiment. Uh, let's say this or that and see what happens. And moral complexity is not compromised. Thought and intuition uh, move freely within the bounds of experiment. And Schrodinger talked about a thought experiment not to predict uh, the future, but to describe reality in the present world. Sure. And, and that's what you're doing with uh, your most recent book, Radicalized. Yeah, it's these four novellas that I wrote to try and make some narrative sense out of the barrage of Trump news that I think, you know, is, is so incoherent and so mismanaged that it's impossible to, to really know what's going on. It just, just feels like everything's happening all at once. And to make narrative sense out of it and to write about how what matters about technology is not so much what it does, but who it does it for and who it does it to. And how an equitable technological future is one that's wonderful and one of the things that makes 
an, an, an inequitable technological future so terrifying and sad and tragic is because not only of what we get, but of what we lose, the chance of a much better future. Mm -hmm. And the, the whole question is who controls this technology? Yeah, whose finger is on the button? Yeah. You know, um, Doug Rushkoff, who spoke here last night at the Writers' Festival in Ottawa, he um, went to this hedge fund conference as, you know, a speaker to talk about the future and technology. And they were all talking about how they would survive when the uh, apocalypse happened. And sp specifically, what they could do to incentivize the guards who would keep poor people from, from murdering them, from shooting them and taking their food after money wasn't worth anything. And they conceived of this plan whereby they could use... Um, automated biometric locks with password backups and proof-of-life systems so that the guards would have to keep them alive or the food lockers wouldn't open. And, uh, you know, in my capacity as a professional dystopian science fiction writer, I can certify that this is a bona fide dystopian way to think about the future. <laughs> but the technology is not intrinsically dystopian. I'm a person who worries about my waistline as much as anyone else. If I could put a lock on my fridge that made sure that I was in my weakest moments, I, I would have to take some extra steps and go and remember a password and unlock something, that would be literally the same technology. The only difference is who's holding the key. Yeah. Science fiction's great gift is its ability to imagine the same technology in a different social and economic context. You know, what if Walmart, but not capitalism? That's it. Uh, that that motive would motivate people to get involved in politics, I would hope. Sure. Well, that, you know, the science fiction can inspire and it can warn much better than it can predict, <laughs> thankfully. Well, we live in a troubled society and people are looking for guidance. And we are engaged in a collective labor of trying to find a way through it. And um, if, we, if we can all agree which way is up, mm. right, where, where, what gradient we're trying to uh, ascend, then each of us can, without an, a huge amount of coordination, find opportunities to push us all up that gradient. Mm. Right? If we all can agree on, on, on a vision then maybe someone starts a business or someone advocates for a law or someone writes a tool or someone has a key conversation about a different way of thinking about the world, code, law, norms, and markets. And in their own way, without having to coordinate their efforts across everyone, we can have this collective enterprise mm. of ascending the gradient towards a better world, but we have to agree which way is up. And that's well, one of the th things fiction can do. We've also got to take control of the oligarchy. Yeah. And uh, what soften the hardship that capitalism? Yeah, you know, Tom Piketty he says uh, that um, over time, if you have money, you'll have more money. That the rate of return on capital is always greater than the rate of growth. And he's got a great little parable about this. Where he takes two people, Lillian Betancourt, mm -hmm. the heiress of the L'Oreal fortune, she's the richest woman in the world, never never done a day's work in her life, waste of oxygen, and Bill Gates who uh, founded what became the most successful company in the history of the world. And he looks at the growth of their fortunes over the same period. So here you have a person who's doing what markets are supposed to reward, which is founding a productive enterprise. And here you have a person who squats atop a hill of money that other people administer. Mm. Her fortune grew more than his fortune. But what's even more interesting is Bill Gates then quit and became effectively a plumber. He moves capital around, right? He's an investor. Mm. He no longer does... But he's a philanthropist. Well, he's a philanthropist too, but that doesn't grow his fortune. Being an investor grows his fortune. That's what he wants to... Con that's what Piketty wants to consider. Okay. So Bill Gates' investor, his fortune grew more over the same period because he's been out of Microsoft as long as he was in it. His fortune grew more over the same period than it did, not like in absolute magnitude, but just in difference, right? The number of billions he brought in 
starting from that point was more when he became a financial plumber than it was when he was found in the most productive industry in the world. And so in the absence of some redistributive mechanism, over time, even the most meritocratic society becomes an oligarchy because capital is not migrated into the hands of people who can use it the best. It's migrated into the descendants of people who made it in the last generation. Yeah. And you That's have, what copyright does, too. It helps the survivors. The survivors, and not necessarily, especially to the extent when you're talking about works that are made up of other copyrighted works, like music, where you have sampling and so on. What that does is it, it pays the debt at the cost of the living. The yeah. artist who's expired or in fact the music label who expropriated the copyrights of the artist who expired, yeah. has a steady stream of income that comes out of the earnings from the artist who's working. Mm -hmm. And so this is not an equitable answer either. right? Mm -hmm. And so um, an anti-oligarchic policy is one that uh, redistributes, breaks up fortunes, um, and breaks up uh, oligarchic enterprises. In every one of these stories, yeah. you see that the crisis is precipitated by a crisis in evidence-based policy, right? Like, why do we have toasters that won't let you choose third-party bread? Why do we have an, a health insurance industry that disqualifies the people you love best from the care that would save their lives and dooms them to a slow and painful death? Why are predictive policing tools being sold to the New York Police Department that send them off to beat African-American men within an inch of their lives or beyond their lives? And in every case, the failure of policy is driven by someone lining their pockets. Yeah. And they make so much money from the failure policy that they have money left over to lobby for the policy to fail more, right? They have concentrated gains and we suffer a diffused loss. And so, you know, one of the things that states are supposed to do is aggregate the political will of people whose costs are diffused into a, a spearhead that can be used to battle against these, these spears that are being fashioned by the people who have concentrated gains. When I dump toxic waste in the water, I save $1,000 from not having to filter my, my factory effluent, and each person downstream has to spend $100 on a water filter. Mm -hmm. And they spend $100,000 in aggregate, and I earn $1,000, but each of them is only at $100. And they need to solve a collective action problem to come against me. And I can spend $500 out of the 1000 that I saved to lobby to get even laxer standards on pollution. Mm -hmm. and Lather, rinse, repeat, and now, you know, in West Virginia, the largest industry is not coal, it's chemical processing. The largest company in West Virginia that does chemical processing is Dow, and they're represented by a lobby firm. And West Virginia is contemplating a relaxation of the standards for uh, chemical processing effluent in drinking water. There's a national standard set by the EPA, and they want to create a variance that's, that allows for more toxic sludge in their drinking water. And Dow filed comments saying, those national standards assume someone who has the national median body uh, mass index, but West Virginians are so much fatter than their American cousins mm. that we can poison them more before the poison reaches the same concentration. And besides, they barely drink water at all. So that is the answer that you write in the box of why should we do this. If you have run out of fucks to give and you know that no matter what you write in that box that you're going to get what you want, it is one step away from because we say so. And the money that Dow saves from poisoning West Virginia will be money it can spend to make the excuse that they write in the box even more risible the next time. So what would you like people to read your book, Radicalize, to feel and think and do? I want them to come away with a sense that the important thing about technology is who it's working on behalf of and who it's fighting and not... Who, not what it does, and that to understand that um, seizing the means of computation is the only way through and out 
of our technological world. That solutions that say, well, if the tech companies are going to be this big, we might as well get used to it and impose state-like duties on them, even though that precludes the possibility that a competitor would ever unseat them, that those solutions are no good at all. They're worse than the problem. Because in the long run, if you think that it's hard to negotiate with Google now, give them 10 years without any competitors and mm. see how you like them, yeah. right? And so we need to be attending to the curse of bigness, to the, the problem of monopolization, much more so than what the individual monopolists do. Every billionaire is a policy failure. Every monopoly is a policy failure. There are no good monopolies. There are no good billionaires. So vote Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, although, you know, she has to realize that we have to break up the entertainment monopolies. To she, There's a thing in her manifesto for breaking up the tech companies where she says, well, we're going to have to help the artists. Transferring money from big tech to big content isn't going to transfer money to artists, no. right? They, they, you need, you need a, a, a seller's marketplace for artistic work to change the ratio of money that's, that's taken in to money that's delivered to artists out of the revenue stream. And so, you know... I'm all for breaking up big tech as a starting point, but you know that's the beginning. And we have to break up everything. We have one wrestling league left. There were 30 40 years ago. It's owned by one guy. He's worth 3.5 billion dollars. He gives it to Trump, and he because he's the only game in town, he can classify the wrestlers who work for him as contractors, deny them medical insurance, and then dropping dead at 45 and 50. Every industry is concentrated, and it's bad for everyone who cares about everything that those industries deliver, except for the people who sit in the boardrooms at the top, the shareholders who, who elect them to sit in those boardrooms. It's time we started making policy for the, for the many and not the few. And not to call what you're doing the horror of socialism. Ha! Yeah, I don't know what we're going to call it, but, uh, you know... I, I do think that socialism is experiencing a new vogue, not least because we've had 40 years of uh, cons, uh, you know, Tories and, and Republicans telling us that roads and hospitals and public education and health care uh, and so on, clean drinking water are all creeping socialism. I think a lot of people woke up one day and said, well, if that's socialism, I guess I'm a socialist. Thanks very much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Cory Doctorow is a uh, co-editor of Boing Boing and a regular contributor to The Guardian, Locus, and many other publications. His novels, Little Brother and Homeland, were New York Times bestseller. He lives with his family in Los Angeles. Thanks again. My pleasure.